Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hello, everyone. This is Vita Pirdas. I'm with the Prison Mindfulness Institute, and I'm happy to be here with Dave Smith. Dave Smith is a Buddhist teacher, a mindfulness and emotional intelligence trainer. He's an internationally recognized meditation teacher, addiction treatment specialist, and published author. His background is rooted in the insight tradition, and he's empowered to teach through the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society. He has extensive experience bringing meditative interventions to jails, prisons, youth detention centers, and addiction treatment facilities. Dave teaches residential meditation retreats and classes, provides trainings and consulting in both secular and Buddhist contexts, and works with students through his meditation mentoring program. He founded the Secular Dharma Foundation and lives in Aonia, is that how you pronounce it? Colorado. Good job. Okay. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay, so you've been teaching this dharma and other mind, emotional intelligence for a long time and bringing it into the world of prisons and post-release and various facilities related to the criminal justice system. Maybe you could just share a little bit about how you got into working with these populations. Sure, yeah. I, um, I uh, lived in Nashville, Tennessee for a long time um, and around maybe, um, God, what would it be, maybe 2008. 10, I, um, I was working in addiction treatment centers and I was working for an organization called the Mind Body Awareness Project. And I was, um, I was really on fire for, for Dharma and for meditation as a really just a very deliverable, quick intervention to help people just deal with their minds and their suffering. Like it seemed like it was a really bite-sized nugget that if people could get just some insight into the fact that their mind was causing a, a big amount of their suffering that they, they would get relief relatively immediately. So I was kind of on fire. And I, and I was a Dharma person. I never uh, really thought that I would do what I ended up doing. And I was working at a, a youth detention center, a youth drug and alcohol facility. And I was teaching mindfulness to the kids there, and they really took to it. And so at one point, I, I tried to implement some programs at the agency I worked at, and they were kind of resistant. And around that same time, I had sold my house in Massachusetts, actually, and I had I had I had some money, and um, and so I just quit the job there, and I and I was like, I'm just going to take some time, and I'm just going to call all these agencies in Tennessee and see who's willing to let me teach mindfulness there, and so um, you know, I started just basically teaching programs for free, and so there was a lot of. Nashville, Tennessee was a very, had a, had a really good drug court, court program. Nashville, Tennessee actually had a lot of very robust clinical programs that they were teaching in, in the jails and prisons for people with substance abuse. And I got um, hired by this really wonderful woman named Regina DeRiggi, who was doing cognitive behavioral therapy at programs in the jail. And she didn't have anybody to teach the mindfulness. So um, basically, I started doing programs with her. And then Nashville, Tennessee, the clinical program in, in corrections was kind of a small group of people. So kind of word got around that I was doing mindfulness trainings and teachings in the programs. And I just started to um, teach up you know, 30, 40 groups a month. And, and, and it just took off. It literally just took right off. And I, 
I was just on fire for it. So I, I was really for a couple of years, um, really was just really loving doing the work and found that I was, I was getting a lot out of it. And it was really working. And it was also, this is Nashville, Tennessee, not exactly the Mecca of Western Dharma mindfulness. Right. Um, and so I did that for many, many years. And then I started developing trainings and programs on my own. So um, that was really how I got started. So um, so that's a lot of groups to be running at once. So yeah, it was. with the kids, you noticed that they, the youth, did you notice that they, they, you said they took to mindfulness really well. So how did you go about instructing that? Because, you know, sitting and looking at your breath for long periods of time is... Well, I had some advantages. <laughs> I had some advantages because, first of all, it was kids in the South. Um, I'm a big guy. I dropped the occasional F-bomb. I'm covered in tattoos. <laughs> you know, I, I honestly, that I got the kids' attention right away. They're like, who's this guy? You know, okay. they could relate to me. And, and, and I was very into self-disclosure. I talked about my teen years. I talked about having trauma. I kind of would do a, a narrative biography about why I practice meditation. So one thing that you have to do in these institutions that I, I don't think people understand is that if you're delivering mindfulness in a place where people don't want to be, like prison and jail and youth detention and drug and alcohol treatment, the present moment's the last place they want to be because they already don't even want to be there. Right. So you have to what I call create a buy-in, where you have to talk about it about about it to the point where they get tired of hearing you talk about. It. They're like, oh, "Are we gonna? Are we gonna? I want to try it." You have to you have to kind of be a little bit shady and a little bit manipulative and a little bit. You kind of have to trick them into thinking that this is a good idea. So, what do you talk about? Like the benefits, or do you talk about like the well? I think what, mind, or you know, proliferation, or what do you talk about? What What seems to work, and I've always worked for me, and I think this is helpful, is of course this buzzword that we all talk about: authenticity. Is that I really just talked about myself, and I talked about my suffering, and I talked about how hard it was for me to be a teenager, and how being a teenager actually totally sucks, and parents totally suck, and like school systems and bullying, and in the world that we live in, kind of sucks, like kind of a dukkha, suffering, yeah. normalizing the human experience of like, yeah, like being a person kind of is, is a drag, right? And then letting them know like, and how much do we add to that? Like things are already a drag, and then we go ahead and we we pour gasoline onto the fire. And and I and I talk about how I my journey in meditation and how it helped me. And usually, if there's some authenticity and they can relate to you on a personal level, we know this in therapy. I, I'm trained as a clinician, also. The rapport is is the best intervention you have. So if you can develop a kind of rapport with with the folks, then you know you could get them to hop on one leg. You know, once there's a rapport set up, so that once you get that rapport and a buy-in, delivering the mindfulness is actually quite easy. But if you don't get that, then it's really hard. Yeah. So what advice do you have for people who don't have tattoos and aren't like that? <laughs> well, I think, I, I, I think, <laughs> you know, you know, first of all, it's not for everybody. You know, I don't think everybody's well suited to do this kind of work. And um, I think you have to have, you have to be in touch with and understand your inner teenager. If you're working with teenagers, for example. Um, and if you if you have any unresolved trauma or unresolved issue or unresolved suffering around your teenage self, the kids are going to trigger that in you and you're going to get activated and you're going to get, you know, your inner teenager is going to get triggered. 
So you have to do some kind of, you have to have done some work in terms of dealing with your kind of teenage life. Um, and you have to be in touch with that. Um, and so if you, if you, if, and I've seen people do it and have it not work out. So that, that's something that needs to be explored. And if you had a really difficult teenage experience, which is, which is not uncommon, then, then you can use that to your advantage. Um, but I think that, um, one thing to watch out for, I think, is that if you go into the room and you're an adult as information and you're going to teach them something that they need to know, if you go in there with that, with that posture, you're, you're kind of dead in the water. They're, they're tired of that. Here's another adult who has all the answers, who's going to teach me about life. If you go in there with that attitude, they're going to eat you alive. Right. So... You t- you formed the Secular Dharma Foundation. So how do you you know I assume that you're into secular Buddhism. So yeah. how do you translate mindfulness, you know, which Satipatthana or whatever it is, into sure. you teach the four foundations of mindfulness with some other kind of language or something like that? Yeah, I think that's the tricky game, and I I I'm also a, a you know a, an insight person. So Theravada Buddhism, really early Buddhist. The early Buddhist tradition is what I know and I'm sort of obsessed with. And, 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 and essentially the teachings in the Pali Canon. It's really, as far as Buddhism is concerned, that's really all I know. Um, and so I think that there's, it's actually not that hard to deliver the teachings of Four Foundations or Four Noble Truths or Brahma Viharas or whatever these kind of Buddhist terms we use around. But I think you have to, and the Buddha said this, right? You have to speak to people in the language that they use. Um, and that's actually not that hard to do. Uh, people under, and, and so a lot of the, 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 the vehicle that I find is most helpful that actually doesn't come so much from the Buddhist tradition and that I'm trained in and I think is really the kind of doorway in is emotional intelligence. Everybody can relate to emotions. If you talk about anger, people know what you're talking about. If you talk about fear or sadness or even something complicated like shame, People know, whether they like it or not, or whether they'll admit to it, they know those experiences very intimately. So there's a way in which that I kind of confront the emotional intelligence, emotional freedom. I kind of come with that first, and then the backup is the mindfulness. So I actually don't come in with the mindfulness. I'm like, I come in with the emotions, and I say, actually, and if you want to be free from your destructive emotions, you're going to have to have some self-awareness. And it turns out the best way to develop self-awareness is this practice called mindfulness. So I kind of sneak it in. Right. And so the work we do, we use, we, we, we specifically called it the Secular Dharma Foundation, not the Secular Buddhist Foundation. I'm not interested in trying to secularize Buddhism. I think Buddhism's doing a great job and I have no interest in tinkering with Buddhism. Uh, but Dharma is a different thing. And so really what that is, is trying to take the ancient languages, uh, the Pali languages, the, the original teachings really, uh, and coming at them and bridging the gap between some of what I would call Western contemplative wisdom traditions which the therapeutic world and, and modern secular psychology, EMDR therapy, somatic experience therapy, this, we have a whole rich, sophisticated taxonomy of clinical interventions in the modern world that are fabulous. And I believe, and I think it turns out that if you bridge those with early Buddhist meditation practices, you get the best bang for the buck, which is why most, most, most therapies, obviously, as you probably know, they like the word they like to park the term mindfulness based in front of it. Yeah. Now, there's probably 20 
there's probably 20 programs that have mindfulness based parked in front of it. Cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, John Kabat-Zinn's kicked the door open on this. So there's all these mindful, they call MBIs, mindfulness-based interventions. So I, I like to bridge the gap between those because I don't think, I don't think Buddhism alone is adequate enough for addressing the sophisticated suffering that we all experience. And I think without the wisdom of Dharma and the wisdom of self-awareness and the wisdom of the heart, the sometimes the current clinical uh, modalities we have actually fall a little bit thin. So my sort of, I'm sort of obsessed and have been obsessed with bridging these gaps. And so we, we, we put that under the title of Secular Dharma uh, Foundation because essentially that's what we do is we try to, we try to marry these worlds in a way uh, that, that's constructive and can be delivered in, a, in, in terminology that's not confusing or, or put people off, but really in everyday uh, terms. Yeah. I mean, our, you know, our longest standing prison program that, I, that originated in Juvie Hall in Colorado is oh, nice. called the Path of Freedom and it's mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. But it's because I came from a Dharma background, that's why the title is the Path of Freedom. And I never say Buddhism in it at all, but it kind of, it was combining integral theory actually and Buddhism, you know, with techniques, but then all kinds of other stuff like nonviolent communication, sure. skills, you know, other kinds of skill sets that would be that we're going tandem but i've sometimes talking with people who are doing these so-called mbis they kind of take what we call like a sandwich approach you know like okay here's a little bit of like mayo and that's the mindfulness and then the meat of it is going to be neuroscience talking about neuroscience or talking about something else and the mindfulness kind of goes to into a one minute I'm really kind of exaggerating here but it sometimes it does it just is like one minute look at your breath and now we're going to talk about all this other stuff and then there's right development of that ability to stabilize the mind that's right yeah yeah the water the mindfulness gets slowly gets watered down to the point where it's almost not even there anymore right and then mindfulness is just kind of like something it's sort of like i think martine bachelor said to me once mindfulness is not just staring at things no well mindfulness we've kind of rendered the term useless at this point yeah because it's just like something that's thrown on everything Yeah, I know. I'm I'm with you. I don't know how far down that road I want to go, but I have very mixed feelings about the term mindfulness and we're stuck with it. You know, so it's part of the, you know, it's part of my job is to deal with this. Uh, And so I try to, um, you know, you have to be clever and intelligent and sophisticated enough to be able to, uh, everybody delivers it in a different kind of way. But I think the part of it, you're right, is that, and I think a lot of it too, is people don't, if you don't have the personal practice background, people sometimes will skip over or gloss over too quickly because they, it's hard to get people who don't know about it or who haven't done it before, who are resistant to it, to sit for five, 15, 20 minutes. And so part of it as a facilitator, you have to realize that there's a lot of facilitating mindfulness is dealing with the dukkha of the fact that the people in the room don't want no part of it and having to stay with it and give them a couple more and let them, let them hang out there for a little while. Right. So what do you, on that note, what do you do with people that are just completely resistant and kind of like, they just associate and they just want to sit there and space out? Well, fortunately, I don't do a lot of that these days. Um, uh, 
uh, you know, what, what mostly, and I, and I did that for years. And I think part of it is I just, you just sort of have to take it on the chin. And, and, you know, if I was in a treatment center setting and, and, you know, I, what I would do is I would, if there was 15 people in the room, I would actually would try to focus on the four or five people who seemed to be getting it. Mm-hmm. And, and the other people who were resistant and tuned out, I just let them hang and say, all right, like, you know, if five or six, if, if I can help five or six out of 15 people, I'm happy. Yeah. And mindfulness I mean, is for say, everybody. I would always say in classes, like, if you're not into this, that's cool. You can just sit here and be and have a quiet time. And, you know, you might find it peaceful. You can even take a nap. I don't care. I said the same thing. Yeah, yeah I think. I, I, <laughs> and one thing that I used to do that I think was really important when you get into prisons and, and, and jails and places like that is I would not teach or be involved in a program that was mandated. Yeah. Because, you know, I would say pe- the people have to want to be in the room. And when I would go into the jail, the first thing I would say, if there's anybody who actually doesn't want to be here right now, you're, 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 you're welcome to leave. And in fact, if you don't really want to be here, I would prefer that you do. Yeah, do you, in our classes, a lot of them, they give good time. And so therefore, you have people that want to be there, but they want to be there to get the good time, which is, does create some kind of, usually by about class five, they're in. Yeah. You know, but so it's just, it kind of works out. But at first, they're not definitely not coming for the class. Right. And that's hard. You have to negotiate that. I was lucky because the program I ran in the jail for many years, it was a really hard program. Like people would go basically up, up to the judge and they would say, okay, you're, you're, you're charged with all these drug related crimes. You can either go do your sentence, which is whatever that is, or you can do this program, which the program was usually longer than their sentence. They're like, you can go do six months and get out, or you can do this 18 month program. So the people who opted into the, the program really wanted it. It was a very difficult program. It was easy to get kicked out of it. It was really well done. The state of uh, Tennessee, I applaud them. They, they did. It was a really well done program. So I, I didn't, everybody was pretty much, you know, in it to win it. And they did some 12 step stuff in that program and they did some other stuff. So, you know, I had 30 or 40 men or women each time and everybody was pretty motivated. They really wanted to turn their lives around and they took it very seriously. So I was fortunate enough to be in a program where they had kind of had a screening process that was done before I even got into the room. Great. So um, speaking of emotions, so in in the classes I've been uh, teaching in the last few years, you know, I think it's the norm, but, you know, probably heightened in COVID. I was asked how many people here are experiencing anxiety. And at first I thought in some of these maximum securities that people wouldn't be willing to say yes, you know, but 100% of the people raised their hand. That's good. And say how much this is a really big issue for you. And 100% of them raised their hand. So, you know, we teach these kind of breath work techniques that mm-hmm. slow right down, regulate really fast. But what do you do with people who are experiencing such a, it's of course, totally naturally experiencing such a high level of anxiety. Yeah, the, the school of thinking that I mostly uh, ascribe to is that of, of the work of Daniel Goleman and very specifically Paul Ekman. Now, I, and I'm trained in a program that's, I think, by far the greatest program for emotional intelligence called Cultivating Emotional Balance, which was developed actually, which came out of the, the book Destructive Emotions out of a meeting in 2000 in Dharamsala, India. You might not be aware of it, where the Dalai Lama invited all these scientists and all these uh, Buddhist meditators to develop a curriculum 
to address this. That was a secular curriculum. It's called cultivating emotional balance. So I was trained in that. And so one of the, one of the things that's actually really helpful, ironically, about emotions is if you can give people proper education on what emotions are, how they operate in the system, that they actually do have a role and they do have a purpose. They're not these annoying things that we all have to deal with. And in CEB, we teach emotional intelligence as not emotions are these annoying things that we over, need to overcome, but emotions can actually be a path to freedom in and of themselves. So the one message that I try to get across, and I'll try to get across right now, is we really have to stop thinking about emotions as being positive and negative. Mm-hmm. Emotions aren't positive or negative. Emotions don't have that kind of thing built into them. The question is, do I have a constructive relationship or a destructive relationship to emotion? And so that changes the whole game. And so part like, so I would say, uh, I think that in our culture, we are too cognitive heavy. We're too over pathologizing psychological disorder. Anxiety is a good example. To me, anxiety is a fear problem. Anxiety is a destructive relationship to fear. So people talk about anxiety. It's like we shouldn't be talking about anxiety. We should be talking about fear. And what do you do when you get scared? Well, when I get scared, I overthink, and that's called anxiety. And so I think that when you, for me, emotions are often the lowest common denominator. And so could I, could I have a more constructive relationship with my fear? Um, I, and so a lot of times that gets people, you know, they're like, wow, I didn't know. And, and it, to me, that's so overwhelming as a kind of a public service announcement is we do not teach people in our culture at all about the science of emotions. Emotions actually turn out are not this mystical, elusive, mysterious things that we think of them. Science has it pretty well sorted out. There's universal emotions that we all have. You know, they, 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 they came online through our evolution as human beings. We, we adopted them. They're here to stay. They're not going anywhere and they're not necessarily bad or wrong. They just happen to be there. So I find I get a lot of mileage out of just giving people some basic education on what emotions are, how they work, and then what we can do about them and what we can't do. And I think that I find that once I get through that, people go, okay, well, now I'm now all of a sudden mindfulness becomes they're like, well, now I'm interested. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I think that that's, that's largely kind of like uh, the secular Dharma Foundation. A lot of the work that I do personally that's not in a Buddhist context is, is really trying to um, deliver education on that. So a lot of times the work I do now is I train trainers. So now I train the people who go into the treatment center. I train clinical staff. I train therapists in a program that I've developed called Mindfulness East, which East stands for Emotional Awareness Skills Training. Right. So part of it is like, you know, you don't, you know, you do need to have some mindfulness, but you don't need to actually have as much as you might think. So the question is, when you become emotional, when you become triggered into emotion, can you be aware of that? Right. And that actually turns out to be hard to do, because as you probably know, we get triggered, the amygdala kicks on, our prefrontal gets shut down. And mindfulness is a prefrontal thing. So that it takes people, you know, it takes a little bit of time and it takes a little bit of energy to kind of... And some courage, I think, is a word that has gone extinct in our society. Take some courage to do this stuff. This is this is not easy work. But it's also, you know, just like you said, important to get the context or, you know, just the mechanics of it. So you realize, oh, hey, this is totally normal that I reacted with this. It's or, totally yeah. normal. It's common. Everybody's doing, I think the normalizing of it is where people go, oh, you mean 
this happens to everybody and this is biological. I'm like, yeah, this is just, it's not your fault. Yeah, I know we were doing a class and or, or the, uh, the facilitator reported to me. I told her this, this technique called social noting. You've heard of it where they, you say out loud what you're, you know, one word, a one word note, you know, like, unplug, you know, you go through, yeah, sure. and to go through the four foundations. So first you say body sensations, itching, you know, whatever, unpleasant or pleasant. And then you say some formation. And so she was mostly doing the formations, you know, like anxious or anxiety or relaxation or whatever. People were just saying that and going around the circle saying it out loud. And they, afterwards, they, so many people reported Oh my gosh, when I'm walking around now, I realize everybody has so many things going on in their head. And I never even thought of it like that before. And they change so fast. Wow, yeah. you go around the circle and somebody who was like depressed turns into like relaxed in the next go around. I know. Less than a minute, you know, they've changed their, their emotional state. So they, yeah. they really got some insight from doing that. Right. It turns yeah. out impermanence is actually a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> And then they're like, oh, because I thought we were meditating. I was, you know, the one guy said, I thought I, everybody else was kind of like doing this, whatever meditation is. And he, he said, no, I was just having all these. And now I see everybody's having all these. Right. <laughs> well, that's why I think that social emotion, and I, and I like social emotional learning, but I think that that industry or that movement has has almost eliminated the mindfulness, which I think is a foolish move. But I think, I think the social relational uh, Gregory Kramer's work, Insight Dialogue, which I think he's the master of this stuff. Yeah. Of like when we go around, we're like everybody's freaking out and totally, you know, like we're all weird and and, and odd, you know. But everybody thinks everybody gets isolated, right? And I think a lot, a lot of this actually, I think it stems from the emotion of shame. Yeah, and uh, that I'm not good enough, and everybody else is. Yeah, everybody else is having a wonderful life, enjoying their experience, having a fabulous time, not having their cars break down, being able to pay their mortgage, their kids behave. It's like, no. no. And so, you know, I think that that's why I think group work is so important. I think one-on-one -on -one therapy is good, but I think, and I, and, I, and I haven't done it in a while. One thing that I do miss doing is doing group ther therapy work where you can, where people can really see like, wow, everybody is having a hard time. So one thing that's, you know, my personal kind of interest these days is that, you know, with the Dharma, you kind of sign on to a path. At least I did. You sign on to a path. You kind of have, you don't have, I didn't have a lot of doubts. I thought this is, this, I read a bunch of books. I practiced some and I listened to teachings. And I was like, okay, I'm in. I'm in. You know, and so then you it develops into a path quality, you know, where you feel like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have to get, be enlightened right now. I just keep working the path, right? Sure. But the mindfulness classes sometimes it's just sort of like a in a prison sometimes it, you know it's worse positioned in life skills part of this curriculum for the prison yeah. and so it's just kind of like another workshop another thing to download i know another bunch of information and the path quality is not quite it's not there at all you're right so i'm just wondering how you know with i think that's that's a bummer yeah you know and i don't know you know, what the remedy is, but you're absolutely right. And I, I agree. And I think that, you know, and also I think America, if, if I can use the word American Buddhism, um, 
people have kind of, if you look at the eightfold path, which I think every school of Buddhism would acknowledge that that's what we're doing, where, where we want to have a whole path living, which is eight things, which they're not complicated things. It's our intentions and our words, it's actions. It's not mystical. They're just not mystical. They're things that are happening. You and I are doing probably three or four of them right now. But meditation has kind of been yanked out of the structure of the Eightfold Path and it's kind of been like, this is the thing. And yeah. so I think when you take, when you remove uh, an aspect of the path out of, out of its kind of holistic thing, you end up with this kind of not great, you know, because the question of mindfulness, where is it all going? Where is the secular mindfulness heading? What's the goal of secular mindfulness? It's like, yeah, and, and as you probably know, most people who take it seriously, and this is why I, I like the work I do now, because I also have a mentoring program where I work with people one-on-one, -on -one, is people who, it doesn't take long, like the MBSR crowd or even clinical people, if they do mindfulness long enough, they usually end up falling into one of the complex, elaborate Buddhist paths because they're like, oh, somebody's actually thought this thing through. Right. And so I, I, I kind of feel like I sort of wait at the back of the room for those people when they come out and say, hey, by the way, if you want to, <laughs> really, you know, if you want some more. It's already laid out for you. You just yeah, have there, to go over there. There is yeah. more. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also I have no problem. And Danny Goleman talks about this in his book, Altered Traits. There's the wide, there's the wide path and then there's the deep path. Right. And, I, and I respect both, you know, I respect the lawyer or the doctor or the dentist or the stressed out person who's got a busy life, who just meditates for 20 minutes a day and it helps them. And that's all they, all they want is that. I don't, I don't think that's a problem. I think that that's a good thing. So I think that each person needs to assess for themselves. You know, not everybody's going to end up wanting to use it as probably much as you and I have chosen. And I think that that's okay. Um, so I think that when we look at the kind of the great, swath of what meditation culture in our society is it's okay if people are doing the wide path and they're they're you know they download the calm app or the headspace app and they do they do 20 minutes a day and that's more or less all they do maybe their maybe their ethics are already in line maybe they're maybe they're already you know maybe they're already pretty well adjusted and they do well in their work and they do well in their family and they're kind of for lack of a better word mostly happy and that they use this meditation thing to support that. I think that's a beautiful thing. But then there's some of us, I know I put myself in this camp, who's, who's come, who's fallen apart many times. And uh, the 20 minutes a day on the cushion is just not going to cut it for me. Yeah, I really notice the difference if I skip it. You know, yeah, I need more. It's like, it's, just, it's not optional anymore. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I, you know, I'm really screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I'm not, I would not say that I'm a well-adjusted person who's moved through the wor world with, with, with kind of ease and presence. It's been, you know, it's been a really tumultuous journey for me. You know, I, I'm, I'm in recovery as well. I've been sober for almost 20 years. I had a, I have a history of drug addiction. I, I have a history of, of, of not just PTSD, but complex trauma. You know, I, I've had some big knots of string that I've had to untangle and, you know, I've needed more. And I've also needed more than Dharma. Like Dharma, as much as I love the Dharma, I haven't, just succeeded in that. I've been in recovery for 20 years. I've been in trauma therapy. I've been in talk therapy. I mean, I've, I've done it all and I've needed it all. Right. So I don't, I, I don't, I think it's also a little naive to think that there's one, there's going to be one thing that's going to work for all the things that are going on with me. That's why, again, why we like the Secular Dharma Foundation is we respect there's a range of things that people can use to help them uh, overcome their challenges and, and whatever that is is fine 
So what about someone, I was talking to someone the other day and, and she said, I, when I was caught up in this wor- the world of crime or whatever you want to call it, um, she said, I didn't have any, uh, what did she say? I didn't have any concern at all about consequences because she said, I felt like the worst has happened to me. So who cares? Just bring it on. And right. I don't have, you know, you can't say anything. I would never use the word karma or cause and effect or anything, but it was just kind of like, I don't have any concern. I'm just going to do what I have to do in the moment. And it's going to be pretty bad. I get it. Yeah. I, I've been there. So what do you say to someone who's saying that to you? Like, who, you know, in a class, who, you know, I don't care about. Well, I would probably not say anything. I would probably listen to what they have to say and try to try to help them unpack how they ended up there and try to maybe help them unpack. Because what we're, what we're talking about essentially is sort of a kind of apathy or yeah. a kind of, it's all just a meaningless, bottomless pit anyway. Right. And so, you know, you know, I find that in situations like that, I'm, it's much probably more helpful for me to listen and to maybe ask a question here. And that's why I like motivational interviewing. It's good for this. Yeah. And, 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 and let them keep talking to it, get to a point where I can point out something like, well, actually, it sounds like you care about this. And it sounds like you care about that. And it's like, ironically, people who say they don't care or they don't give a shit about anything, actually, it's, it's actually not true. They usually actually care a great deal. Right. But the things that they've cared about have either been undermined or destroyed or have died or or have there's been so much loss that their feeling has become, well, caring about things is stupid because if I care about something, I'm just going to get hurt. Therefore, loss, sadness, is trauma is so painful that the only intelligent thing to do would be to just not care at all and therefore I'll just do whatever I want to do. And 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 it's pretty not that hard for someone to slide into that perspective. Right. I've been in that perspective. Do it all the all day long. <laughs> you know, so it's um, you know, it's trying to let trying to let people talk to the point where they recognize for themselves, wait a minute, actually actually I totally do care. I wish I didn't care. Right. <laughs> you know, I really wish I didn't care. I find that happen in my life all the time. I care about things. I'm like, I really wish I didn't care about that, but I totally do. Right. And, uh, and, you know, and this is, I think, a, a term that we see in early Buddhism that comes from the Pali tradition called anukampa, which means to cry out at the crying out at the world. And it's that actually, I think that's a part of dukkha is like, is that as hu- human beings, unless we have some really wild diagnosis, we are all having to struggle with the burden of care. We're like, we care about things and we just kind of wish we didn't. And then how you negotiate that burden. You know, that's tricky business. And so it's easy to just say, well, I just don't care. And I just, but it's like, yeah. you know, that's a fool's errand because, you know, so I, I think that that's a good place to start. And also that can be talked about in a group and say, well, does anybody else feel this way? And all of a sudden it turns out we all kind of feel this way a little bit. Yeah. Shouldn't I? And, and then of course we see, we are, we, we see very well, and we see this in Dharma theory, we're dictated by the pleasure pain dichotomy. And so most people feel as though the goal of life, the goal of happiness is to get the things that I want and to avoid the things that I don't want. And you know, that can't really be done. (laughs) Not everybody knows that. I know. (laughs) Somebody's like, I just like to fantasize. I said, has your fantasies ever come true? Nope. (laughs) It would would be nice if the pleasure pain dichotomy worked, but clearly it does not. 
So what if you look, when you're when you're working with people like, you know that are in distress or whatever, what do you learn about yourself? Well, you know, it's it's fascinating because I find that working with you know, I might work with somebody else and not help them much at all, but I get helped a lot. It's a kind of a weird thing. It's like the best therapy is to like actually try to help other people. And if if it works, it works. It doesn't work. But I think it's like, for me, it, it's a constant reminder, um, again, of this anukampa, of this like, uh, of what, what we would call in a secular sense, a shared humanity. And that, you know, I, I find that that's really, really, it reminds me of like, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not the only person having a hard time. I'm not the only person who has a hard time getting my kids' shoes on before school. I'm not the only person who's worried about how I'm going to pay the mortgage next month. I'm not the only person who's worried about COVID and Trump and climate change. And, you know, I'm not the only one. And I think that um, the relational side of it is is really um, so valuable that I, I get as much out of it I probably, I mean, I, I honestly probably get more out of working with the people that I work with than they do. Yeah. So it's part of your path. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, Dharma work is service work. That was something that was important that you'd like the audience to get from this interview. So you're kind of saying that Dharma work is service Dharma work. work is service work. And this is one thing that I don't like is that, you know, in our culture, because we're so career driven, like being a mindfulness teacher, you probably know this more than I do, being a mindfulness teacher or Dharma teacher, people look at it as a career path. Like, you know, I'm going to do a Dharma training. I'm going to be trained Dharma teacher. Then I'm going to teach it. Then they're going to give me a community or I'm going to teach it Spirit Rock. or I'm. A, people have this like totally delusional. And, and I think the people get into it for the wrong reasons. I think largely people, I think people want to become Dharma teachers or mindfulness teachers a, a lot of times for reasons that aren't really so good. And they, and I think if, if we don't, if we have, we don't have that sorted out before we get into it, I think it can become very destructive. So I think that, you know, part of it is, it is hard work. It's service work for sure. For me, it's about, uh, it's about trying to contribute to the world in a meaningful way which sometimes comes at a big cost for me, psychologically, emotionally, financially. You know, it, it's not to be taken lightly. You know, if you want to be a firefighter or a dentist or a librarian or whatever, that's fine. But if, if you think you want to move in this direction, I think people need to really do some good old-fashioned hard thinking about, okay, like, what's the real motivation here? Um, because it's... Sometimes that motivation can also be tinged with, I want to save people. Well, that's, 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 that is very true. And I think that people need to come to terms with that because wanting to save people is not a bad thing by any stretch, but it's, it can't be done. And, you know, and I've been there. I mean, I, I've had compassion. They don't call it compassion fatigue syndrome anymore, but that's the word that most of us know. I've had compassion fatigue twice because of that very same thing. You know, and, 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 you know, and we get burned out and we get compassion fatigue and we, we want to help everybody at the expense of our own well-being and our own self-care and our own, and, and that's, that's very destructive. And so, you know, as they say in, in, in many rooms, you know, if you're going to be, they always tell you to put your oxygen mask on first before you help the person next to you. And I, I, and also, and also the other thing, which I think is the more darker side of saving other people if it's very convenient, if I'm helping all these people, I don't have to look at my shit. And I think that that's a big move that people, they're like, well, and what a brilliant strategy, right? How, like, how convenient is that? I don't have to look at, if I'm helping all these people, I don't have to look at my own 
suffering, my own confusion, my own destructive behaviors. So it's a kind of a, in many ways, it's kind of a brilliant posture. It's the ultimate distraction. So there can be a lot of things, people who want to be Dharma teachers or mindfulness teachers or even therapists, there can be a lot of things in the mix that would contribute to questions that one might sit with and say, well, really, like, am I doing this for the right reasons? And I didn't even, I mean, I just kind of, you know, honestly sort of slipped on a banana peel and ended up doing what I, I didn't think any of this through. You know, I just, I started teaching my mindfulness to the kids in the treatment center because I worked at the treatment center. And then I, I just kind of followed the trail of breadcrumbs that was left in front of me, but I never sat down you know, with a business advisor and, and made a business plan for how, you know, I never did any of that. I never even think about things in those terms. I just kind of opportunities arise. And was, I forget who it was. So, so one of my teachers many years ago, and, and I did this, said, if someone, if you have an opportunity, if someone, if you have an opportunity to share the Dharma, you should always say yes. And so I just kind of started, you know, I just kind of said, someone said, would you come and do this thing? And if I could, if it was, if it was realistic, and manageable, I just always did. And it kind of still what I do. I mean, you someone emailed me from your organization and said, do you want to do an interview with this thing? I said, of course I wanted, you know, like I've just always said yes to these things unless I can't. And sometimes I have to say no nowadays because I've been around long enough that I can't do all these things. But that's just kind of been the trail of breadcrumbs that I follow. Right. So, you know, I've been working in jails a lot. And sometimes you, you only have, you you go in and they're, you're only going to see this person once because they're going to be shipped off somewhere else or they get out or whatever. Is there, you know, you said it's sometimes easy to give people something that they might remember. Would you have like a one thing that you always? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, I guess it depends on the individual is that, you know, yeah, I think the, the one thing is generally like, you know, be suspicious of your own mind. You know, don't trust everything that you think or don't trust everything that you believe. And, and of course, then the question becomes, well, what can I trust? And I think the mind, my, the mind can become a trustworthy companion. But I think for most people, the untrained mind is not. And so at what, you know, so at what point, and you probably know this, right? You've been at this for a while. At some point, the mind starts to become trustworthy. And when do you know, when do you know? when that happens and still today like my mind is not totally trustworthy i have to but i i think part of it is to um is to try to however one can put somebody into a contemplative space for lack of a better word and try to see if they can value if they can see that there's a value in attention of it. Yeah, like so. What's the reason? Is there any internal resource that I have that I can develop? And it might just be paying attention. Right. It might be kindness. It might be, it might be a range of things. But you know, and when we work with younger kids, especially in the ADHD world, of course, every kid I ever ran into at a treatment center had ADHD on their diagnosis. They hand those out like they hand out these diagnoses like lollipops at the bank now. And um, so I would try to get. I would try to encourage people to say, like, try to see if you can recognize that your own ability to pay attention is a resource that you have in every moment. And ask yourself if you're struggling, what am I paying attention to? What have I been paying attention to for the last five minutes, last hour, and has been paying? What has been the consequence of paying attention to that? And so I think that when people realize attention is a choice, is a moment-to-moment -moment choice. That, and of course, that's kind of like 
Buddhist Psychology 101. Uh, and it's not a very, you know, esoteric, elaborate concept. Paying attention is something that everybody gets. And so I think that, that that can be a nice nugget of something that people can take and say, oh, yeah, like attention has consequence for good, bad, or otherwise. Great. So we're coming up to the end of our time here. So is there anything else that you'd like to give as an advice or to people who want to get involved in this work or... You know, I, I do. I, I think a lot of it is a. I, I think I think people who want to do this need to reflect and spend some time really coming to terms with their intention and their motivations of why is it that you want to do this? Because I think at the end of the day, and maybe even at the this is hard work. It's hard work at the beginning. It's hard work in the middle. It's hard work at the end. And people don't always like to do hard work. I, I think it's worth it. That's kind of my message is, is the work is very, very difficult and very, very hard and very, very, very much worth it. But both of those, you know, both and it's both really, really hard and both very, very worth it. And if you're not willing or you don't have the capacity, maybe you don't have the emotional or psychological capacity. But I think that um, people really want to, this is not something you just want to you know, dive into. I think it's something that you need to really think about and, and remember that, that it is hard work and that it's service work and it's actually not about you. Yeah. You know? Definitely. Yeah. So um, where can we find out more about your work? Just sort of- If you go to davesmithdharma.com, that's my website. And probably everything I do or have out there is clickable off of that website. I have a, a Wednesday night class that people can sign up for that's every Wednesday. I have some online classes. I have a mentoring program. I'm on Spotify and iTunes and YouTube and all the all yeah. the stuff. <laughs> Great. So I'm actually pretty easy to find. Okay. And most of my resources are free. Like all my Dharma talks and my podcasts and you know my podcast probably has 200 talks on it, guided meditations. Uh, and all that stuff is freely offered online, people. And if they want to further develop work with me, then they can get in touch with me and, and, and join one of my more intimate programs. So, um, again, wide path, deep path. How, how much do you want out of this? You know, I think it's all good. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.